Hello and welcome to the 10 series of the DNVGL Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck. In this series, we take a fresh look at the role businesses play in lowering the world's carbon emissions and how they can work with governments, policymakers, and other key decision makers to transition faster to a clean energy future. With the price of technologies such as wind and solar PV continuing to fall, investments in renewable energy are delivering better returns than fossil fuels in many parts of the world. But is it enough to keep us on track with the Paris Agreement? I speak to Christina Sørensen from Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, who tells me about her own role in pioneering some of the world's first offshore wind projects. She also discusses the need to completely rethink the network that renewables feed into if clean energy technologies are to have an equal share of the energy mix within a generation. We hope you enjoy the episode. Christina, to jump right into the topic, it would be great if you could give us some background about Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners and what you do. Thank you. Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners is a fund management company. We are managing seven funds totaling 12 billion euros, and our funds invest exclusively into renewable infrastructure. We were established back in 2012 as a joint initiative with our founding investor, Pension Denmark, who is a large pension fund uh, and one of the first direct institutional investors in offshore wind so the purpose was to create an alternative to fixed income in the low interest rate environment, meaning creating a unique long-term investment product with an attractive risk return profile. As many uh, financial investors does not have the uh, industrial experience to take part of large greenfield infrastructure projects, our fund uh, has been designed and set up to do exactly that. And today we are more than 130 colleagues, primarily with an industrial and energy background. And we have a mix of competencies between finance, engineering and law. And this is important to cope with the investments across a variety of energy markets, technologies, partners and capital structures. That's a very uh, impressive portfolio, Christina. I would like to ask you a personal question. What is driving you personally uh, to bring the energy transition forward? So in CIP, we are set up uh, to manage greenfield projects and therefore the energy transition becomes really important. So we need to understand what renewable infrastructure uh, is relevant tomorrow so we don't invest in, in electricity that is not part of the clean energy future. So prior to establishing CIP, I was part of initiating one of the first energy transitions and this was in a large utility, namely Ørsted. And we were pioneering the offshore wind by building some of the first projects in the world. Uh, but the cost was too high and we were focusing on getting the cost down through initiatives in the supply chain and creating new financing models where we attracted financial investors and also enabled project financing. Thus, taking that mindset and establishing to a broader investor base, uh, ensuring that we can have capital uh, deployed in the energy transition, I think that is, uh, that is very important and, and an exciting part of, of what I do. As you said, CIP is funding and managing pioneering energy projects. Could you give us some examples of some of the exciting things you have done? So we invest in offshore wind, in onshore wind solar, in transmission assets, in thermal assets, biomass, 
uh, we invest in geothermal, in pump storage. So you can say the breadth of our technology base is quite large. And I think that at, at, in itself is quite innovative. But we do use the similar approach uh, to mitigate the risks on behalf of our investors. And that has to do with um, understanding, of course, that they are relevant uh, infrastructure investments, but also making sure that we can de-risk from a contracting perspective uh, the investment. Um, one example could be the offshore wind project of Beatrice in Scotland that we are part owners of. Uh, so this project is uh, challenged in the way that we had to utilize the jacket foundations as opposed to the more classic monopile foundations due to the uh, depth of the waters and the challenging seabed. But getting 84 uh, jacket structures ready in just one year is actually quite a construction effort in itself. So apart from partnering with an experienced operator, namely SSE, and apart from choosing many experienced suppliers, which we did, uh, we also made sure that the production of the jackets took place in five different yards with uh, five different suppliers. So when something went wrong, these uh, suppliers uh, could collaborate, uh, swap volumes and make sure together uh, with the project that uh, there was a certain robustness in the delivery uh, of the foundations. And I can say that the foundations were delivered on time and the, also the wind farm, and that was a great achievement and I guess actually one of our first achievements in the CIP. Christina, you just mentioned the importance of cooperation. And if we look into the DNVGL Energy Transition Outlook, cooperation may be even more important in the future because what the Energy Transition Outlook says is that we expect that in the future about the same amount of energy in the energy mix comes from renewables than it comes from fossil fuels. And that means that we need a major upbuild of renewables. Where would this growth come from? Mm, it's a really good question. Uh, I think the easy answer would be that uh, everything will grow a lot, which I actually believe is also the true but I completely subscribe to the expectations of DNVGL's latest forecast. Um, the development of renewable technologies have done that for itself, so to speak. Uh, they have come down in cost, and it just makes a lot of sense to deploy these technologies where it makes sense. So where the wind blows, we'll have a lot of wind. Where there's a lot of sun, we'll have a lot of solar and so forth. But I think there are more challenges to it than that. Uh, so we also need to address the, the challenge that uh, some of the properties, and probably most important here is the intermittent production, need us to rethink the network and the society that these technologies feed into. So investments in, in uh, new infrastructure, central transmission, distribution networks, uh, storage, uh, could also be pump storage, power to X, a lot of these technologies are really key enablers and also needs an equal portion of investments, as does uh, the supply-side investments. So um, I'm living in a country, Germany, and I, can, I think I can say that, and that's not a secret, who had very high ambitions to uh, have a transformation, uh, to do a lot about climate change. But we are getting stuck here in all kinds of things, uh, mostly political things and regulatory things. Uh, regional planning is not getting ready. Uh, maybe that's gone now, but there's issues or there were issues with grid infrastructure and so on and so forth. And we had a record low installation number for renewables, although we thought 
it's a good idea to do that. Um, I'm telling this because I would like to ask you, what do we need from the stakeholders uh, in the industry to actually make this growth happen we require? That's another good question. And I think we need to probably all agree that it takes a lot of uh, trust of uh, the different uh, stakeholders uh, to make it happen. I think that the, the policy frameworks used to last for a lot longer than they will do in the future. So I think it's good that we have high ambitions and gotten costs down on the wind technology and the solar technology. But if we don't adapt the networks and um, how the society consumes electricity in the same rate, then we will not be able to deploy the cheap energy in the same rate. So I think the faster policy development is a, is, is a key uh, to actually enable more renewables in the system. And also that needs to be developed more holistically, I think, and with trust in the dialogue between the developers, the energy companies, uh, the regulators and so forth. I also think that a lot of good initiatives is going on right now from the recovery initiatives uh, post the pandemic. And I think it's key that those huge sums made available for new investments actually are put in the future transition and where it's needed and not necessarily in the challenges that we have already overcome, so to speak. So I would definitely call for making sure that the policy is also directed to the uh, demand side investments and not only on the supply side investments. And are you engaging on the demand side as well as CIP? Yes, we are. I mean, we are investing into transmission assets. They are a rare gem, I would call it. So there are not many projects like that. Uh, we are fortunate to be part of a of a project in in North America, uh, and so so that you could say is more on the it's it's actually more midway. Then uh, in Denmark, uh, a very ambitious climate plan has been launched uh, post pandemic. And that includes actually some energy islands where we are also participating and collaborating in the discussions of how to how to make that happen in practice. Uh, and I think the energy island is exactly the type of lighthouse projects that we need. So it's basically a hub. You put 100 kilometers offshore. You can connect massive amounts of offshore wind. Uh, but then you also need to be able to store or produce uh, power to X or transmit to one country or to another country to better utilize offshore wind uh, compared to when you just have a have a one-sided uh, transmission line. That is a very interesting aspect because that also leads to the question what needs to happen um, on a more global basis to get the energy transition moving forward because a lot of initiatives we see today are kind of um, defined by countries and are maybe also limited to then the resources of the country and the infrastructure of the country. Yeah. How do you see that uh, developing going forward? Will we see that that becomes a bit more joint planning? I hope. <laughs> so I, th I think that's uh, not only a good question, but also a difficult question. I think there are forces pulling in each direction, and I think everybody can subscribe to that. So energy is by nature, uh, at least electricity is by nature, quite uh, local and regional. And then 
there are uh, global energy streams, particularly in the more uh, fossil areas. Then you have the geopolitical tensions, and that creates sometimes you know more collaboration, sometimes more focus on security of supply and 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 uh, more national planning. I I think and hope it's a two step forward, one step backward two-step forward approach. And I do see a lot of openness of the different countries when it comes to learning from technologies that we have already deployed in other countries. So one good example, again, is offshore wind, where countries in Asia, so we are currently doing a big project in Taiwan, they are certainly welcoming the capabilities and experience we have uh, from the European base in offshore wind Uh, and they are of course putting up requirements of us learning skills and uh, and making sure that we are establishing a supply chain in the local markets which also makes sense since it's very far from Europe but they're definitely very open to discuss uh, our learnings and the energy related topics and learnings that we can uh, contribute with you mentioned two things where I want to go deeper Uh, you briefly mentioned uh, the impact of COVID-19 a bit earlier. There's some saying that renewables were relatively resilient uh, to that pandemic. But maybe from uh, the perspective of CIP, how has that affected you and what view do you have on the impact of this of this virus? So it's it's a difficult question. I think it's true that the fossil production was hit harder than the renewable production following the lockdowns. But I do think also renewable was hit by the lower power prices, just as an example, but also with the limited movement of supply chains for a period of time uh, where construction sites were shut down and, and, and so forth. So I think it's true that they were uh, quite resilient, uh, but still there were some uh, eye-opening events, you could say, where it became clear that the energy demand, electricity demand was not a constant and thus also the power prices is not a given. So for financial investors, we definitely get more questions on how do we expect the future um, the future market to look like and uh, how we can incorporate uh, more certainty around the offtake arrangements and so forth uh, now that we are, you could say, one, uh, one experience uh, wiser post the post the lockdown of the pandemic i do however think that we we see a lot of uh, big oil and gas majors entering the the renewable scene now uh, so and that definitely gives a confidence to the financial investors so i think there is a lot of backing for renewables but it's also just to say i don't think it's a one-sided advantage so to speak so that leads me to another question i want to ask you We see a lot of players, as you just said, getting into the offshore wind space, as for example, the oil majors. We hear from some um, of our clients that it sometimes has become difficult to get good projects because there is quite some competition around the available projects at the moment. Uh, do you see a problem there uh, for, for the further development or is this certain oversubscription quite healthy? So I, I'm I'm in the healthy camp. So I think uh, competition is good, and uh, we need much more developers and energy companies and uh, companies in general to take responsibility for the for the energy transition. Uh, so getting the really 
strong companies in here also and to participate in the new energy field uh, is uh, is excellent and i think that uh, we are still uh, too few uh, companies and developers uh, to fulfill the entire uh, target of the energy transition uh, and of course we need at the same time as i also alluded to earlier on uh, make sure that all aspects of the transition, both supply and the demand side, are equally uh, targeted, not only the, the supply base. That is, of course, a risk if there's a lot of focus on getting assets on the supply side and less focus on uh, the enablers and creating the flexibility in our network. Right. So you, we talked a bit about new players, maybe new markets. You mentioned one uh, which becomes a quite hot market at the moment for offshore wind or already is. It's Taiwan where you are also active. And that leads me also to one new-ish technology, floating wind, which would potentially also be interesting for Taiwan. What do you think about this and how do you see this developing over the next 10 years? So we obviously see the offshore uh, wind market as growing a lot. Uh, but it so happens that uh, 80% of the relevant ocean for offshore wind Uh, is not suitable for bottom fixed. So if you want to allow the full potential of offshore wind, now the cost has come down and it has proven an excellent technology as it can be put close to demand sensors. I think that uh, floating will have a lot of focus and many people and companies will look into developing this technology to become viable and lower cost. So in CRP, we share that, that uh, belief. And we are also uh, looking to invest, invest into floating uh, projects in the future and following the market extremely closely. I think the concept has already been proven in, for example, uh, Norway and Portugal. So now it's a game to get the costs down uh, for it to be a relevant uh, renewable investment uh, sooner rather than later. But there are so many uh, densely populated areas around Japan, uh, around Korea, uh, around the West Coast uh, US that would benefit from the floating technology. So we, we really believe that this will be a, a strong card uh, going forward. Talking about attractive energy markets uh, and staying with offshore winds, obviously at the moment it's Europe and Asia which are leading there. What other markets in the rest of the world would you see have great potential? I think we are so far away from fulfilling the full potential of the of uh, Europe and all of Asia, Australia and the US. So, and there are definitely also other markets around that. But I just think that uh, 10 years ago, it was only in Europe. Now we are on three or maybe even four continents with offshore wind. And we will see many countries looking for this as a powerhouse in the electricity supply as it can be put right next to uh, yeah, to the big load sensors. So I think um, in my mind, there are a lot of markets and countries putting out plans for specific plans for offshore wind, uh, both of course in Europe, but particularly in Asia and also in the US. So in my mind, that's really uh, where the growth uh, will be for many years coming forward. I think we have a very long way to go uh, to fulfill the potential. Christina, we talked about stakeholders in the industry to enable the growth we need. What about technology like digitalization, machine learning, better insight into data? 
Yeah, as I, as I previously said, I think the deployment of renewable energy at the large scale that we need uh, will need the network and the society to consume electricity and energy differently. And there's no doubt that the, the balancing uh, act, you could say, of the transmission system operators, I would never claim that it has been easy, but it was probably more simple with the fewer central units of the same type of technologies. Now you need to be able to fit in generation uh, at a very central level, but also at a very local level, even in people's own houses. I think we will need to adapt uh, or include all of the machine learning and digitalization that we can in order for that to happen. That's also where we need to uh, increase the collaboration with other industries and skill groups in order to make the the energy transition happen. So thinking that we can uh, reapply exactly what we did yesterday for the new energy system is probably where we would fail if we don't include uh, some of the other skill sets from other sectors, which could be enabling yeah, this, this development. Finally, um, my last question to you would be, what do you think is the most important enabler for us to transition faster together to a clean energy future? You could answer here uh, whether we should have a global CO2 quota agreement and whether that would speed up things. But probably staying more realistically and following up on today's conversation, uh, it's probably wiser to say that uh, I think we should focus on uh, the policy support for this transition. So also to remember to invest in the enablers, so make the demand side flexible to be able to adapt to all the renewable energy that uh, will come in, basically making sure that the policies are not the thing that is delaying the investments. Uh, I think it would be a pity uh, if if we tell our grandchildren that we had a great plan, but we couldn't agree how to implement it. And I think also on the positive side, we should remember that there is enough capital in the world to invest. We just need to make sure that it becomes relevant for the capital to invest in the energy transition. Christina, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you and thank you for all these fascinating insights. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. It was great to hear Christina's insight into the role investments will play in the global energy transition and how stakeholders must work collaboratively to facilitate change. In next week's episode of DNVGL Talks Energy, we speak with Scott Harden, Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft Energy. He will explore the important role of partnerships and alliances in the global energy transition, as well as how AI and new technologies are helping to reduce carbon emissions. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.